Whitfield that he actually did an experiment where he went to one of Whitfield's outdoor gatherings to measure how far out his voice could be heard. Unamplified. And Franklin could hear him over a mile away from where he was preaching. It's unreal, right? That's why Charles Spurgeon said, if a man has a concave chest, he's not given to the task of preaching. Yeah, they used to have, back in the, the old pulpits, the sounding board that would go out over the pulpit so that the voice would, would reflect, I guess, off the board and, and go out further. But Whitfield didn't even have that. He was out in the, the, the highways and byways. Anyways, I'm thankful for microphones. Um, men's breakfast coming up this weekend, and so uh, be sure that's on your calendar. We are going to be uh, inside at uh, 150 over in, in Maine there. And uh, have a, a new offering for breakfast this time around. We've got breakfast burritos this time, uh, still from uh, Bagels and Brew. But uh, we are going away from the slightly grayish scrambled eggs from time to time. And we're going to do breakfast burritos instead. So uh, there will still be bacon. There will still be fruit. For those of you that need to report back to your spouse that you had some fruit, there will be fruit there. Um, but we're excited about that and excited about that time together. So that's this Saturday. Make sure that you are there, men, if you are available. Let me pray. And Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is what's in front of us, the rest of it at least. Father, we're grateful for the, this morning and uh, the food that you've provided for us this morning. Something as, uh, as good as McDonald's is a, a common grace of yours, and we are grateful for McDonald's. The Golden Arches uh, is something to be thankful for. And uh, God, we are Thankful for your word even more so, that we get to feast on it, and that we get to uh, take this uh, text, this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, which uh, you wrote through your servant Solomon so long ago, and yet it is still so very practical and, and relevant for us, because these are the words not of a man living in a particular culture and time, but they are more importantly the words of a God who transcends all of that. And so help us to uh, obey them, and to learn from them, and to... Uh, just strive to, uh, to pattern our lives after what you've called us to do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, by now, these should be familiar to you. In fact, if I asked you to list the goals, you probably could list at least a handful of them. And, and these are still our goals. And we're still dealing with these as we're turning to this passage before us this morning. And the passage before us this morning is a passage that may sound a little bit uh, familiar, if not redundant or repetitive, but I, I want to challenge you to think about the reality that, that this is part of God's inspired canon. That as we look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if we really do say that we believe all scripture is breathed out by God and therefore useful and profitable for reproof and training and correction, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work, right? If we believe that, then we have to understand that when God repeats something, he's repeating it for a reason, for a purpose, and for our good. This isn't Solomon with a senior moment, forgetting that he had already dealt with money earlier in the book. This is Solomon coming back to the subject of money and wealth again because God wanted us to be confronted with the subject of money and wealth again. And yet Solomon's going to spin it a little bit. It's not just that he's going to say, hey, this doesn't satisfy. We, we understand that. He's covered that before. But now Solomon's going to spin it and, and talk about what, what should we do with our wealth and with our possessions. How do we honor the Lord in this? Does God just want us to abandon that? Does God just want us to forsake that and, and give it up completely? And the answer to that, of course, I, I hope by this point in time you would understand would be no. But he does want us to have the right perspective. And that's what Solomon provides for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And so this passage, like 
passages before will help us love the book more, learn to love our lives more. And certainly to, to learn from death is we consider the, the great statement from uh, Chuck Swindoll, who said, I've never seen a, a hearse pulling a, a U-Haul. Solomon's going to say something similar, actually, in our passage. Uh, the, the death means that we have a different perspective on our wealth, right? Certainly it's going to help us to loosen our grip on the things of this world when we think about wealth and possessions and finances and material things. And it's also going to help us live well with these things in order to be adequately prepared for the Bema Seat. So grab your Bibles, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 if you're not already there. We're going to start with two verses that are, are difficult for us. The passage preceding this, the one that we talked about last time we were together, was all about worship, right? And I find it ironic that, maybe not ironic, I find it interesting in, in although Solomon maybe didn't intend it this way, I wonder if he did perhaps, and that is to, to pick up the surgeon's scalpel to go from worshiping God to worshiping money because of how prone we are to chase after the God of money. And so in the, the context, I think it makes sense. But in the in-between, we've got these two verses in 8 and 9. It says this, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So right here, there's a, a translation issue. Because there's a question about whether this is implying that the high official who's corrupt is watched by a higher official who's not corrupt, right? It's wondering, is Solomon implying that don't be surprised, don't be amazed, don't be dismayed at this because the corrupt official is going to be held to account by a higher official? There's, that's one option. But the other option, and I think the more preferable option, is Solomon saying don't be amazed at this because the corruption goes far deeper than we realize. The official who is corrupt is watched by a higher official who's also corrupt and protecting that one who also in turn is watched by an even higher one who's also corrupt and protecting the whole gamut. And certainly as we look at our political landscape, I think we can see that evident, can't we? You start at the, the county level and then go to the city level and then, or city level, then county level, then state level, then national. And you see that, that corruption just bleeds throughout all of politics, doesn't it? Well, Solomon would say to us, that's nothing new under the, the sun. Verse 9, though, he says, what is good for a society and a culture is to have a leader who in every way is committed to cultivated fields. In other words, is to have a king who's concerned not for his own gain, but for the gain of the people, to make sure that, that people are well cared for and provided for. And that's what he means there by cultivated fields. And the reason these two verses are, are difficult is because he now shifts from here in verse 10 to the love of money and to, uh, to, to focusing on worshiping wealth. And it's difficult because this clearly doesn't go with where he's just come from and going to the house of God with careful mindsets and intentionality there like we talked about last time. And it, it, it's kind of hard to see his connection to money afterwards, although I think it's better seen in connection to the, the wealth side of things. Because I, I think in, in my opinion, at least what Solomon is doing here is he's saying corruption exists and there's a, a corruption that comes with power and there's a corruption that comes with money as well. And we need to be careful with both of them. But he does turn his attention to money in verse 10 and says this. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's fleeting. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see with them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, sometimes people come in, in warn us of something and, and our response might be, well, I'd, I'd like to 
try that for myself before I draw any conclusions. And maybe that's how you feel about that opening statement from Solomon there in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Well, why don't I go ahead and try that for myself? You know, Solomon, that's easy for you to say because you had all that and you were able to see that it didn't satisfy you. But man, for me, I, I, I wouldn't mind being frustrated with a little bit more wealth. Dak Prescott, the quarterback, at least for the next four years of America's team, and if you don't believe that it's America's team, when I say America's team, you automatically think Dallas Cowboys. Whether you agree or not, Dallas Cowboys comes to mind. And you know what that shows you? They are America's team. Whether you want to agree or not, it's the reality. You can want your team to be America's team. They're not. The Cowboys are. Anyways, Dak Prescott just signed with the Dallas Cowboys a four-year contract for $160 million. $126 million of that is guaranteed. $160 million. This next season, he's going to be making around $22 million to quarterback the Cowboys, which, by the way, is a pay cut because last season he received the franchise tag, which paid him $34 million. And this season, he was scheduled to make $37 million if they had not signed under this contract. So $22 million. But let's break that down. Here's what that equals out to. If he plays in 16 games and gets a bye week, 17 weeks, he's going to have $1.4 million paid to him per week. $1.4 million per week. That comes out to $346,000 per quarter played. $346,000 per quarter of, a, of an NFL football game. That works out to $29,000 per minute of an NFL football game. And an average NFL game has between 50 and 60 offensive plays. The good teams that have a high-powered offense, 70. And as a Cowboys fan, I decided, well, let's give Dak the benefit of the doubt. So I went with 70. That's $20,000 per offensive snap. $20,000 every time he says hike or Omaha or whatever they say out there, right? That's amazing to think about. It's mind-boggling to think about. And I, I guess, and, and I think I'm on level ground here, that I don't think any of us are making $29,000 per minute. If you are, let's talk afterwards because I've got some eternal investments for you that are going to pay off hugely in life. But it's interesting because what took the Cowboys so long to sign Dak is Dak wanted to make more than the other quarterbacks in the league. In fact, the only quarterback paid higher than Dak Prescott right now is Patrick Mahomes. But that's not going to last. In fact, yesterday, as soon as this news broke, they went and they interviewed, the, the national reporters went and they interviewed the GM of the Baltimore Ravens. And the reason they interviewed the GM of the Baltimore Ravens is because they've got a quarterback playing for the Ravens named Lamar Jackson. You may have heard of him. And Lamar Jackson's contract is coming up soon. And they went to the GM of the Ravens and they said, well, how do you think Dak's Prescott, Dak Prescott's contract is going to impact Lamar's contract? Why would they ask that question? Because Lamar's now going to say, well, I want to make more than Dak makes. And really, this is illustrating Solomon's point here. Because never in the history of sports has an athlete stood up in front of all of his peers and said, you know what, guys, I found the magic number. This is how much money you need to make to be happy. So at your next contract, go in, ask for this, and you'll be set for life. No, what do they say? They say, well, I want to go in and make more than that guy. Why? Because there's an idea in their minds, at least, that that's going to make them happy. 
in 2018, there was a study done from Purdue University that found, and I I don't know regionally where this factors in, but at some point in time, no matter of cost of living adjustment, there's a number out there. And for this study, they found that if somebody makes $95,000 a year, that that's the magic number to be satisfied. And they're looking at what does it cost for health insurance and to have a mortgage payment and to have a car. And those were all the factors that they were combining to come up with this number, $95,000. But what's even more interesting in that is the same study found that people in surveys, people who make $105,000 or more reported decreased levels of happiness. Let me repeat that. People who made more money reported a decreased level of happiness. And again, you may think, well, $105,000 California money versus Kansas money is different, right? Yeah, sure, that's fine. The point of it is, there is a number out there that even the world, that even unbelievers, that people who, who don't have any perspective of God or eternity or anything else would say, yeah, there's a, a certain number where I'm not as happy making this much as I was when I was making Less. And some of you remember maybe the early days of starting out when you first got married and how life was simpler at that time. And it, it was maybe even perhaps a little bit more joyful at that time when you didn't have as many resources and needs and, uh, and, and assets as you now have that can distract and grab your attention. In fact, look at verse 11. We'll come back to the first half in just a moment, but I want you to read the second half. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead to verse 12. Verse 11 says, when his goods increase, they increase who eat them. What's he saying here? He's saying, when you make more, you what? You spend more, right? I guarantee you, you make more than you did at your first job. And yet, it's not as though you're kicking back now going, well, I'm, I'm set and I don't have any needs. I don't have any concerns. I don't have any worries anymore. Even though when you had your first job, if you thought about, man, what would it be like to make what you make now? You probably would have thought at that point in time, man, life's going to be easy at that point. But that's not how it works, is it? Because you make more and all of a sudden you begin to spend more. I remember when uh, my wife and I first got married, we used to have a saying whenever we would save some money on our electric bill or whatever, we would say, hey, five bucks is five bucks, right? And we still say that from time to time. But more often than not now, it's, hey, 20 bucks is 20 bucks. Because there's a difference in perspective, Right? you make more and all of a sudden $5 doesn't have the same weight that it once did when you were first starting out. And that's the point of verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner to, their, to them but to see them with his eyes? But that idea of, of life is sometimes simpler when we don't make as much is drawn out in verse 12. And that's where I wanted to go a moment ago. Look at the second half of verse 12. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is the idea that, that now that you have amassed your possessions, there's a certain level of anxiety that comes up along with that. Now that your assets are spread out in the stock markets and in the, the different areas with different investment opportunities, now you stay up at night and you wonder to yourself, well, what's the stock market going to do tomorrow? Or what's the stock market going to do when this new politician steps into office? Or you lay awake at night and you think to yourself, did I set the alarm on my house? Why? Because you live in a world now where people break in and steal. And now you have things that people would want to break in and steal. Or you go on vacation and you still can't really enjoy vacation because you have 
open up your phone and you look at the cameras at your house to make sure that everything's going okay and that your house is still standing and hasn't burned down to the ground. See, the more you have, the more occasions for angst that you have and turmoil that you have. And that's what Solomon's saying here. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's no peace just because you have more. In fact, sometimes it's the opposite. Man, money, money certainly talks in this world. The, the question is, does it have the substance to back it up? We need to be careful to, not to, to say, well, money is evil, but to say the wrong view of money is evil. Our first point this morning is this. Consider well the pitfalls of wealth. Consider well the pitfalls of wealth. The pitfalls. When we begin to, to, to look to, to money to do something that it was never intended to do. King Solomon in the book of Proverbs wrote this. He said, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, like a high wall in his imagination. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? That our wealth can give us a false sense of security is what Solomon's saying here. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. In other words, it's, it's not really something that you should trust in for security. It's just simply there in your imagination. It's like leaning on a spider's web for support. It's not going to hold you up. And so often that can be the case with money. If you're looking to money to satisfy you, if you're looking to money to make you feel secure, if you're looking to money to be that, that sense of fulfillment in life, you are going to be disappointed because it can't satisfy that's why Solomon says in the opening of this passage, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Solomon is writing this from experience. He was the, one of the most wealthy men to ever live. In fact, the Bible says in his kingdom, he made silver as abundant as the stones in the street. And he's saying, I've, I've had it all and it will not satisfy you. And we know that as well, right? You may not have as much money as Solomon had. However, you still understand this. You get a job and you get a new promotion or you get a raise with that new job or whatever that may be. And, and initially it looks great. Wow, look at that. Look at how much more money I'm making. And then you go home and your wife wants to redo the kitchen. And all of a sudden, that big leap that you made from making this much to this much is now much less. Why? Because you've got a new kitchen. And now you're left there thinking to yourself, man, it'd be great if I made a little bit more than I make now. Or you get a $600 stimulus check in the mail. But then you hear rumblings of a $1,400 stimulus check in the mail. And you think, man, I'd like to have the $1,400 stimulus check. Until you get rumblings of a $3,000 tax credit for parents of kids. That's why I have so many kids, by the way. I knew this day was coming. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's, that's where our mind goes, is we always want more. And, and we don't get to the place, right? Elon Musk, has he stopped making money? No. Could he? Yes. Yes, he could never make another dime in his life and be fine. I'm convinced of it for the rest of his life. Jeff Bezos with Amazon, same thing. But those guys are still going to go out. If you sat down with Elon and said, Elon, I'm going to just ask that you stop making money so that other people can make a little bit more. You've got yours. I think he's going to laugh you out of the room. Why? Because he understands what Solomon's talking about here. 
He's living what Solomon is talking about here. The pitfall of wealth is when we look at it to satisfy us, it's never going to satisfy us. In fact, think about this for a moment. This is an interesting exercise. If Elon showed up and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to do something for all of you men because I'm a philanthropist. I'm going to go back into a room back here, and I want you to take five minutes, and I want you to come back and sit down with me, and I want you to give me a number. And I want that number to be how much money would it take for you to be happy for the rest of your life? You get one shot at this. And all the way, also, by the way, don't talk to each other about this number. If you mention this number to anybody else, you're disqualified and, and you won't get this. But I want you to come back and I want you to sit down with me in private. I want you to tell me, Elon, I need this much money for the rest of my life to be happy. What would that number be for you men? And how many times would you question, okay, I think this is my number. But man, is that really my number? If I get an opportunity for a blank check from Elon Musk... Is this really the number that I'm going to ask for? Do I want to ask for more? Is this going to be enough? It's convicting, isn't it? When we think about it that way. Because money holds out this, it's, it's the carrot on the end of the stick, but we never get the carrot. It's always chasing, always wanting more of it. And when we get more of it, it's, it's just we realize, man, that, that carrot's still a foot out in front of me and I still can't grab it. That satisfaction Another reason why money is, is so frustrating and why it's a, a pitfall for us from time to time is that sometimes we look at it at, at chasing after money in order to, to dumb our senses, to dull our senses from wrestling with the real issues in life. Again, the world understands this as well. Brad Klontz is a financial therapist, which I didn't even know they existed, by the way. He's a financial therapist at Creighton University, Go Blue Jays. And he said this in an article, he said, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we're humans and we struggle with existential issues like what's the meaning of life and who am I? And those sort of questions don't go away when you get a bunch of money. Who am I and what am I here for? And he says, those sort of questions, they don't go away just because you've got more money. You still have to, at the end of the day, look into the vacuous void of your soul and find out. What am I doing here? And that's why we see things happen like what happened with Robin Williams, who had the money, who had the fame, who had the success, who had the career. And yet when he looked inside, when he looked internally, when he looked into his soul, he found that he really didn't have the answer to the questions that matter most, which is, what's my purpose? What's making me happy? And really, is this all there is? Money can't meet that. After one of his multiple Super Bowls, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes and they were talking to him and, and they asked him, well, Tom, how, what, what's it like? And, and Tom, in a moment of transparency, said, honestly, at the end of it, after I won my Super Bowls, I asked myself the question, is this really it? This can't be all, all there is. This can't be it. Again, a, money, a man with, with money and fame and success and achievement staring the, the cold, hard reality that none of that answers the deep questions of life. And that is another danger of money, is money can cause us to numb ourselves by chasing after it in order not to have to wrestle with really the questions that we have to answer. Jesus warns against our pursuit of money and making money our God in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
for where moth nor rust destroys and, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, this is an issue of worship. It's one of the reasons why I think Solomon follows up. Be careful about how you go to the house of God. He follows up a section on worshiping God with this section on money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He continues, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, the pitfalls of wealth, that it can become that God in our lives. It can become what only God should be in our lives. It can promise satisfaction that only God can provide. And Solomon is telling us, if, that's, if, that, if you buy into that lie, you, you are going to be gravely disappointed because it will not satisfy you. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is either a resource to be stewarded for the Lord or it is your Lord. And that's Solomon's point here. Jesus would later say as well, what does it profit a man to what? Gain the world, but forfeit his soul. And so, man, we need to be, beware the, the deceitfulness of money, its traps and its pitfalls. However, the message of Ecclesiastes, the message of this book, the message even of this chapter is not that, that money is evil, Right? Sometimes in, in Christian circles, we can fall into this mindset that having money is an evil and wicked thing. That just couldn't be further from the truth. Sometimes we, we get into this mindset of, of holier than that when we see a brother pull into the parking lot with a brand new car and we look at that car and we go, well, I wonder how much he gives to the church. You don't know. He could give 80% of his salary to the church and only be living on 20%, but that 20% affords him that car and the house that he lives in, Right? We need to be careful not to make snap judgments of somebody based on the, the peripherals when we really don't know what that brother is, is doing with the rest of what the Lord has given to him. Having possessions is not the problem. It's having the wrong per perspective of our possessions that is the problem. Solomon says this in verse 12 when he continues. He says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. There is a contentedness that you can have. Yeah, the full stomach of the rich it will not let him sleep, but the, the, the sweet sleep of the laborer comes to him who eats little or, what's the next word there? Little or much. So you can have a peaceful life. You can have a content life. You can be in, in line with God's will and still have an abundance, still have here, as Solomon puts it, much. It's possible. And so we need to look at what the, that contentment looks like. And in the first thing he does in verses 13 through 17 is he paints this picture to illustrate the dangers, once again, of wealth before he gets to talking to us about how we should use our wealth. And look at verse 13. He's giving this illustration. He said, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept or hoarded by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, sickness, and anger. So this is what not to do. And he starts out this, this illustration by pointing to a man who had, 
done well for himself. He had kept riches, right? And so he'd, he'd amassed all these things. And rather than having the right perspective on his wealth and understanding that God had given him these things, he thought, you know what, I need more. And so he wanted to double down on what he had already gotten. So he went out and he risked it. He invested poorly and unwisely. And he took chances with his money to try to selfishly get more than what he had already had, which was plenty. And he lost it all. And Solomon says, and he had nothing to give to his son. And that's lost on us a little bit because we don't live in an honor-shame culture. But in the Middle East, even still today, they live in what is an honor-shame culture. In other words, honor is everything. And shame is unbelievably unbearable. And at this time, for a man to have nothing to leave to his children would have been the greatest humiliation for him. This would have been a shame and embarrassment that would have been unbearable for him. And Solomon is saying the reason why he finds himself here is because he wasn't content with what the Lord had provided for him. He didn't know the sweet sleep of the labor, even though he had much. He wanted more and he was greedy and he was selfish and he went out and he ended up losing everything. If that's the warning, then Solomon turns to the admonition, the encouragement for us in verses 18 through 20. He says, don't do this. Instead, he says this in verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. Verse 13, look, I've seen a grievous evil. The grievous evil is this, this selfishness that leads to losing everything. But Solomon says, but I've seen also something, verse 18, that's good and fitting. And that is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. That word, anytime you see the word enjoyment in the book of Ecclesiastes, pay attention, right? Because they're few and far between. But Solomon says, look, God has designed something in this life sovereignly. He's provided what we have in order that we would find enjoyment in all our toil with which we toil under the sun the few days of our lives that God has given to us. For this is our lot. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Man, this is the flip side. This is the introduction of the perspective that we need to have about the things that we have. And he talks about it a couple times here in this. Look at verse 18 again. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the few, under the sun, the few days of his life that, what's the next phrase? God has given him. The days of his life that God has given him. Verse 19, everyone to, Everyone also to whom God has given, there's that phrase again, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Do you see three times there? Three times Solomon refers to God giving us things and, and meant this is the key to our approach of our possessions and our wealth and our money that we have. This is what will allow the, the laborer to sleep the sweet sleep of contentment at night. It's to understand this, our second point, and that is to see yourself as God's steward. To see yourself in all that you have in your possession as a stewardship from the Lord. Some of you out there have worked hard in your life and you've worked diligently and you've got a strong work ethic and your strong work ethic has, has led you to a position where you are, have enjoyed success and where you are well provided for and your family is well provided for. And it's tempting for you to push back from the table and to say, look at how much hard work has, has paid off for me. 
and to feel a sense of satisfaction and even pride in saying my hard work has resulted in all of this. And yet we need to be careful with that because this is what God says to Israel about that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember that the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Right there, stop there for a minute. It is God who gives you power to get wealth. So your career, no matter where you're at in your career, if you're at the top of your career and you're looking back over that, think about all of the the hard work that you put in to get to where you are. God enabled that in you right? The synapses to fire to make your fingers type on the keyboard that led you to be able to produce everything that you were able to produce. God enabled that in you. Your ability to to do the the manual labor that that you put in hours and hours and years and years to get to the top, to, to get to the place where now you're supervising other people doing manual labor. Well, what allowed your body to do that manual labor? God did, right? Or just the, the ability to, to have a, a, a mind and an awareness to be able to function daily, to get out of bed daily, to go to work daily, to be safe as you're driving to and from your office daily. What sustained all of that? God did. Men, we don't, stew, we don't have a, a control over our very next breath, let alone our career. And so we need to understand and we need to have this mindset that everything that we have is a gift of God. Everything that we possess, God has given to us, not as ours, but as his. And he said to us, steward this for me. What is a steward? It's a word that we throw around a lot in the church, but just to remind us of what it is. A steward is a person who manages another's property. A person who manages another's property. And that's what we are, men. We manage God's property on his behalf. And that's everything, starting fundamentally with our days. Psalm 139 says that God has numbered our days. That we're not going to gain any more, we're not going to lose any, right? There's a set number of our days that he has put in place. And that leads Jesus to ask this question in Matthew 6, 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The answer, of course, is none of us can, right? Our days are a gift from God. We don't control our days, no matter how committed you are to the latest diet fad, whatever it is out there, keto or whatever, right? Or if you're old school and you're still doing Atkins, uh, whatever that may be, it's not going to matter in the end. Am I saying just stuff your face? No, although eat, drink, and be merry, right? For tomorrow we die. No, but, but your diet is not extending your life any further than God has already determined it would be. You going out for the run in the morning is not extending your life any further than God has already determined it will be. You cannot escape death. Well, I want to live longer. You're only going to live as long as God wants you to live. He's given you a set number of days that you will steward. Now, should we be wise stewards of that by taking care of our bodies? Yes, we should. But we need to understand even just fundamentally, as we think about possessions and what we have, the day that you have is a gift of God for you to steward for him. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a a parable. He says this in verse 42 of Luke chapter 12. The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? 
You know another word for manager is in the Greek there? Same Greek word translated sometimes as steward. Who then is the faithful and wise steward who his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And here's the contrast. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the servant will come on the day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Why is the servant judged in this parable? For not being a faithful and wise what? Steward. He beats and mistreats the slaves. Whose slaves are they? Not his. They are the master's slaves. And he eats the food and gets drink, drunk with the wine. Whose food and, and wine is that? It's not his food and wine. It's the master's food and wine. And the master comes back at an hour when the servant is not expecting him. And the master finds that he has been a lazy and wicked servant and steward. And he takes him and he judges him and he cuts him in pieces. It says very graphically in the text, right? And he places him with the unfaithful. Men, we need to be careful because Jesus is coming back. Yes, do we agree with that? He is coming back and he has entrusted to us. He has called us to be wise stewards of that which he has entrusted to us, or that, that which he has given to us. And James says that's everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above with whom there's no shadow or variation due to change, Right? Everything that we have is a gift of God that he has given to us and said, I want you to steward this. I want you to manage this property for me. Well, what does that look like? How do we manage God's property for him? We manage it by using what we have for him, not for us. Man, our goal and our purpose in this life is not to build our kingdom. It's not to, to have the nicest house, to have the nicest car, to have the smartest family, to send your kids to the best school. It's not to amass all that you can, right? No, it's, it's to use what the Lord has entrusted to you and be generous with what the Lord has entrusted to you in order to magnify his name, to exalt his name, to glorify him. Do you need to be wise and responsible and, and take care of the, those that he has entrusted to you as part of your stewardship, caring for your family by having a roof over their heads and making sure that they are provided for? Yes, that's part of your God-given stewardship. And you can do that for the glory of God as well, right? But we don't, I don't think that's so much our problem. I think our problem is the opposite. I, I think our problem is we are, by nature, inclined to want to store up more for ourselves. And we think about our money more about how does it benefit me rather than how does it benefit the Lord? How can I use this for him? Right, and Jesus told that story of the man who had barns and he filled his barns and he said, well, what am I gonna do with all this? And he said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns and I'll build bigger barns. And Jesus shows up and says that very night and he says to him, you fool, this very night your soul will be demanded of you. We need to be careful, men, that we have this right perspective of money, that the money is not ours, that it's the Lord's, that he is the one that has given us everything that we have. And this is a lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn, isn't it? Daniel chapter four, you remember, he had the dream of the gigantic tree and he was even warned by Daniel. And Daniel in verse 27 calls him to repent and says, look, you need to leave off your ways, your evil ways. You need to repent. You need to humble yourself before the Lord and maybe he will extend your kingdom. He will extend your prosperity. But then it says in verse 29, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is this not great Babylon 
which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. And you know the rest of the story, right? The Bible says, while the words were still in his mouth, the dream came to fulfillment. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from his kingdom. He was given the mind of a, of, of a beast. And his, it says his hair grew like feathers and his nails like the talons of an eagle. And he lived for seven years with the mind of an animal until he was finally humbled enough to recognize that the most high rules over all and gives the kingdom to whom he will, right? Well, men, we need to make sure that we have humbled ourselves in our own kingdom that we have before the Lord and understand that everything that we have is a gift from God, that he has given it to us, that he has provided it for us. And we need to be thankful for it. We need to understand that we are God's steward. Everything that we have is from his hand. And so we need to use it that way and ask ourselves, how can I use it that way? Remember in verse 12, the second half said that, that the rich are not able to, to sleep, right? Because they're anxious about all these things. Because their perspective is wrong, because their hope is in all these things. So they're worried about, well, what happens if I lose all of this? Well, the flip side we find in verse 20. Read verse 20, it says, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And that's what we want, right? That's what allows us to sleep at night in, in peace. And not concern ourselves with the day-to-day -day and be anxious over every single day that comes. What's going to happen? Am I going to lose this? Am I going to lose that? Am I gonna, what if this doesn't happen? What if this doesn't come through? What if this falls through? What's going to happen, God? I, I, I'm so anxious. And, and Solomon's saying, you don't have to be that way if you'll remember that God has given you everything. He says, you're not going to remember the days of your life because you're going to be kept by the Lord I love the way it says that God keeps him. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. A joyful contentedness that says with Paul, he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him for us, how will he not with him also give us everything that we need, right? That's my paraphrase of that, but that's what's, what he's saying there. If, if we can have that mindset to say, okay, Lord, you've given us your son. And just like Jesus says, who of you, if his son comes and asks him for a fish, he's going to give him a serpent. Or a loaf of bread, is going to give him a rock. And then Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Right, that contentedness of saying, okay, Lord, you've given me what, what I have. I want to use it for you. And I'm going to trust that as I use this for you, as I'm generous for you, as I'm looking to, to further your name with the resources that you've, you've provided, you will continue to give me those things that I need for life and godliness. I remember at the beginning of this coronavirus pandemic when everybody was buying toilet paper and selling it on the black market, I saw so many of my friends post this verse in Psalm 118, 24. You, you may have it memorized, or at least you will once I start to say it. Psalm 118, 24 says this, this is the day that the Lord has what? Made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that I have made? No. This is the day that I have earned? No. This is the day that I have merited? No. This is the day that God has made and he's given it to me and I'm gonna choose to rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for you, thankful for your kindness to us, Lord. 
your patience with us because we struggle with this. Especially in our culture, in our society, God, we, all of us here, when you consider the, the world standards of what poverty truly looks like, God, all of us in this room would be considered wealthy. And God, we are so prone to, to buy into what this culture and this society wants us to buy into. And that is to have things is going to make us happy. That to buy things is going to give us status. That to own things is going to give us a sense of being better than someone else. God, and those are nothing but lies from the pit of hell. I pray that you guard our hearts against those things, against the idolatry of money and wealth. I think it's intentional here that Solomon takes up the word as a scalpel and moves from worshiping you to this issue of money because money can be such a prevalent idol in our lives. It was during that time, it is now, and it will be until you return. So Lord, I pray that you would guard us. I I thank you, Lord, for the, the gifts and resources that you've given to every single man in this room. I pray that we would just constantly be aware that they are from you. And that we would ask ourselves, how can I use these gifts that you have provided me to glorify you, to bring honor not to myself and not to boast in my kingdom, Lord, but to to boast in my God. Because you, God, are the giver of all good gifts, as James says. And we want to acknowledge that this morning. God, I pray that you would bless these men even. I pray that you would cause them to abound even more than what they have now. Not so that they will be healthy, wealthy, and happy, but so that they can steward more on your behalf. Your word also says, in fact, in that same passage in Luke chapter 12, that the one who is given much, much will be required. And the one who is faithful in much, even more will be given to him, God. And so I pray that these men would be faithful stewards and that you would use the gifts that they have in order to extend your glory on this earth, we pray. And we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.